Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Today, the federal budget was tabled yesterday in Ottawa, pushback from the conservative opposition, of course. What's in the budget? What's lacking? We'll talk about it. Also, the city is considering further testing on see how slippery the asphalt actually is on the Red Hill Valley Parkway before actually repaving it. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. It's all about the uh, the federal budget yesterday. Uh, it was a weird day in Ottawa, to say the least, yesterday. Uh, starting off, of course, with the uh, Judiciary Committee deciding that our work here is done, uh, much to the chagrin of the uh, opposition members on that committee. And the fallout from that happened later on in the afternoon at 4 o'clock when Finance Minister Bill Morneau rose to deliver the budget, which is a tradition, of course, in Ottawa for federal budgets. But the uh, opposition parties uh, didn't want to let him have the floor. The SNC-Lavalin corruption scandal has entirely consumed Justin Trudeau's government for the past six weeks. And just now, the finance minister presented a budget as though it were business as usual. It is not business as usual. And we could not stand by while the Liberals pretended otherwise. That was uh, Mr. Shear's explanation for, uh, first of all, the foot stomping and desk thumping and eventually walking out during the budget. Anybody who tried to watch this on television or listened to it on the radio yesterday uh, noticed that Mr. Morneau was essentially drowned out by the opposition members. It was uh, not a shining moment for anybody in the House of Commons yesterday, to be sure. Joining us to talk about this is uh, David Aiken, Chief Political Correspondent for Global News. Hi, David. How are you doing this morning? Yeah, good morning, uh, Bill. And we were I was in the lockup, of course, all yeah. uh, day, and we heard, I think it was about, uh, uh, you know, word had got into us at about 2.30 in the afternoon that... Uh, Yes, the Conservatives were planning to do some delaying tactics, and we've seen those before. They did it a couple of years ago, delayed it by, I don't know, about 20 minutes. Um, but, you know, you can roll with that. Um, but then we also didn't know that the Liberals had a little procedural hanky-panky up their sleeves and that they did manage to table the budget, like literally put the budget on the table of the clerk in the House of Commons uh, as markets close. So the budget was out at 4 o'clock, but you're right, we didn't hear the traditional finance minister's speech uh, uh, well, we hardly heard it at all, but it did get going. <laughs> I, I, saw, I, saw his lip, I saw his lips moving, but <laughs> yeah, that, that was a well, he's going to. I mean, really, the, I, I'm sure there's a lot of people who do turn, tune in at you know four in the afternoon on Budget Day. Uh, obviously, we do here in Ottawa, but really, the sales job happens now. The campaign happens now because, yeah. of course, this is really an election document more than anything else. Twenty-two billion dollars in new spending was uh, announced in this program. A lot of new spending programs, but most of that spending and some key programs do not start until after the election. So the message is pretty clear. Re-elect the Liberals. If you like the spending programs, elect somebody else. You're going to put these programs at risk. So uh, that's clearly what uh, the Liberals are betting. And more, you know, Bill Morneau was in Toronto this morning at a, I think a, you know, economic club speech, selling the budget. He's back in Ottawa this afternoon, and then I'm sure he'll be coming to Hamilton, doing the whole uh, southwestern Ontario tour to try sell this budget to save Liberal seats. Of course, that uh, in liberal-rich southern Ontario. This is a, a typical election ploy, though, isn't it, really, David? I mean, to, to backload this thing with all sorts of goodies or tax cuts or whatever a government wants to, to do to try to attract attention. But that's the codicil always. you got to elect us first, or re-elect us in this case. Yeah, and this, obviously, the Trudeau government is not the first government to try this trick, and it's, of course, incumbent on the cons the opposition, conservatives and New Democrats, uh, and the uh, media, of course, to say, hey, wait a minute. Uh, and, you know, one of the things I think that the liberals are going to find out is that they, they did open up or leave open 
Um, their left flank, and I've talked about this before, how I think they, they've already were vulnerable on their progressive flank, you know, broken promises on electoral reform, broken promises or not enough action on climate change. Well, one of the big issues to the New Democrats is a national pharmacare program. They, they first came up with that. They want to have that as quickly as possible. And the Liberals took very baby steps and really won't get anything off the ground for two or three years, again, after the next election. So I think you'll see the New Democrats come hard at the Liberals saying, hey, this is not sufficient. Uh, Canadians want a national pharmacare program. This is the NDP talking. And uh, the Liberals uh, didn't do anything about it. So vote NDP and we'll take steps to get your national pharmacare going. And, and that seemed to be the polarization that I noticed in some of the comments yesterday, David. Uh, obviously from the right, uh, Mr. Shear was talking about deficits. And uh, when he yep. started, when he finally got around to talking about the budget after the, the SNC-Lavalin thing. Uh, and you're right. I mean, Jagmeet Singh on the other side was uh, suggesting, and I heard a lot of comments from other commentators, too. They were expecting something about Pharmacare. I mean, basically what Mr. Morneau said yesterday was old news. We already knew that Eric Hoskins was looking into this, and they've allocated money for his his work in the budget. Uh, but people want to see some action on this, and, and it, like you said, it's at least two or three years away. Yeah, so, I mean, that, and there is, I think, uh, only a billion dollars set aside for the National Pharmacare Program again over six years, and we really don't get into spending it until five, six years down the road. I mean, that's one. And then there's the housing issue, and this was, uh, you know, a pre-election talk. There was a lot of talk about Liberals are going to try to make it easier for first-time home buyers, and they did introduce a couple of plans uh, that they say make it easier for first-time home buyers, uh, but what they didn't do was increase or make some programs to increase the supply of Home, new, you know, entry level homes for sale. And when you increase the demand for something, of course, by making it easier for new first time home buyers to get into the market and you don't increase supply, well, this is basic economics. You're going to put upward pressure on the price of entry-level homes. And again, that's just going to hurt affordability for folks in the greater Hamilton area, folks in the greater Toronto area. Uh, uh, we have economists on the left and the right, you know, Bay Street economists and folks from progressive think tanks saying that the measures the government took here actually works against making homes more affordable. And once again, we come back to, I think both conservatives and new Democrats can pick at this, because I think this is a big deal, particularly for the millennial generation, people looking to start a family, looking to get out of their rental home, looking to get out of their parents' basement and get into a home. I'm not sure what the government did here is going to help a whole lot, and it may make things worse in some cases. Well, and I, I should point out, uh, go ahead. Bill, that Bill Morneau, yesterday when I, brought the, I asked him about this, he said, Aiken, you're wrong. It's not the first time I've been told I'm wrong by the <laughs> so There you go. Uh, but, but look, we've talked about this uh, the, uh, the specific aspect of this number of times, and I know some people may be dismissive. Oh, yeah, affordable housing. That's not, uh, one of those left-wing things. One of the strongest voices that I've had on my show about this was Tim Hudak, who's the former leader of the Ontario PCs, and, of course, he's now the president of the Ontario Realtors. And he says it's sure. about housing stock. That's one of the reasons we had a housing crisis. You didn't have to put caps on or say foreign investment. Build more houses. Give more stock. That's what lowers prices, and they don't seem to get that. Yeah, and so in our lockup, we bring every news organization brings some experts into the lockup to help out with this. And one of the experts we brought in was a guy named Don Carson. I've known him for years. He's an accountant with MNP, uh, works in the GTA. And he noted that, you may remember this, a, a few years ago, I forget the acronym, there was a program for MERBs, I think multi-use residential buildings or something, MERBs. Anyways, what it was was it didn't cost the federal government a lot of uh, money. It was more a tax incentive to get people to build 
uh, more uh, residential housing, not for rental, but for purchase. In other words, things first-time home buyers can buy. And it actually was very effective. A lot of uh, home buyers took advantage of this program. They got some tax breaks. They were able to write off the, you know, depreciate things quicker. And it increased the stock. So there are ways to do this to, to, that the government could have said, let's, let's find a way that home builders will want to build more homes. We didn't see that yesterday. Instead, we saw some programs to help home buyers. And here's one of the one of the programs. Think about this. They they are going to allow you, a first time home buyer, to dip into your RSP even more than you can now. Right now, if you have an RSP, you can take out ten grand, put that towards a down payment on a home. You got to repay that ten grand of your RSP, but you can use that. Now you can take out thirty five thousand dollars of your RSP. But let me ask you, how many people in their early twenty or late twenties, early thirties have thirty five thousand dollars in their RSP already? I, I didn't. I'm trying to save then. Uh, I'm not sure a lot of people are going to go. Oh yeah, well I was just had that all that sitting around so it's there now you can use it but i'm not sure how many people can use that so uh and then the other thing was letting the cmhc essentially become a part owner of your home so the cmhc will give you an interest-free loan for part of your uh mortgage and they're going to take a chunk of it but it's basically capped on homes that cost five hundred thousand dollars or less Yes, again, and I, I, I know because I used to work and live in Hamilton, you can buy probably a nice starter home for 500000 or less. But once you start getting into the greater Toronto area, $500,000 doesn't get you a whole lot. And so I'm, again, not sure how many people will be able to take advantage of this program. No, five hundred grand will get you a nice garden shed in, G, in the GTA. That's about it. Uh, but I, I was talking to some folks in real estate about this this morning, and, and actually the morning was very concerned about this and said, you know, on, on the surface it looks good that they've offered incentives and some financial incentives, but he was worried that it's going to cause another bidding war on real estate properties like we had about three or four right. years ago. Uh, and that's, exactly. that's, that's making a bad situation worse. Yeah, no, and that's exactly it. It is going to essentially uh, increase the affordability problem, and you know we're right back to where we started. And so let, let's loop back to the election. I've said, been saying this for the last six or seven months. If you can figure a way to help millennials, people starting out, they want to start a new family, they want to get into a home, they want to have what their their parents had, which is a nice home in the suburbs and two kids and a cat and all that sort of thing. If you can help that millennial voter out, I think you're onto something. Because millennials, for the first time in this election, they're going to be the single largest voting bloc, bigger than the boomers. For the first time ever, the boomers are not the big uh, heavy haters here. It's those millennial voters. Now, millennial voters have not typically come out and voted in an election, but they did last time. In 2015, their voter participation rate uh, jumped from like around 40% to uh, the uh, mid-60s. We don't know if they're going to show up and vote again this year, but last time they did, and a lot of them voted liberal. So this is, I think, a key demographic that all parties, I think, have to think about uh, as they're thinking about programs for 2019, for this uh, election season. One of the other uh, demographics that uh, I know you were talking about in the days leading up to this, David, that you thought they might go after is, uh, is university and post-secondary and, and people that are graduating. And, and what they uh, proposed yesterday was almost a counterpoint to what the Doug Ford government was doing. Uh, they've made it easier to pay off student loans now, you know, giving them a little more freedom like this and actually reduce the rate. Uh, which obviously is targeted towards that generation. They, I mean, they're, they're about to be millennials, but they are voting people. 
Right. So, uh, so that you're right. That absolutely the, the, one of the, in the, this, this budget sort of had a little bit for everybody. Home buyers, uh, we could talk about what they're doing for seniors. And yes, uh, for students, uh, they're going to make it easier to repay your student loan. You can get an interest free student loan. Uh, and they think it's important that m more Canadians try to get into uh, post-secondary education. Uh, and, and that's fine. But you're right. That, that sort of raises the issue of when you, when you're a federal government and you're introducing new programs, uh, will those programs work in harmony with existing provincial programs, uh, sort of provincial priorities? And quite clearly, you know, the uh, the Ford government is at loggerheads, obviously, with the Trudeau government on any number of issues. And, you know, this may be another area where so there's some cross-purposes going on. Why the rebate for electric cars? Uh, I, I, I mean, we know yeah. that every, everybody <laughs> talks about that as this future, and even the automotive industry is talking about that. The sales just aren't there. Uh, there's some concern here. I, I heard a little bird tell me that this may actually be a bit of a crumb to throw at GM to say, look, if you want to start building uh, Chevy Volts in, in Oshawa, uh, we're going to offer a rebate program. I, I don't know if you can connect those two dots, but it seemed kind of incongruous that all of a sudden that would be in this budget. Actually, I hadn't heard that, Bill, but that's uh, that connection to GM. But that sounds as good as me and Annie. Listen, I don't know if you saw this, but somebody was mentioning in the lockup yesterday, Greg Cerbera, the former uh, oh, sure, you know, yeah. Ontario Liberal Finance Minister. So Greg Cerbera apparently wrote something in, uh, I think it was in the paper. Anyway, here's this anecdote. Cerbera bought one of these Teslas, okay, an all-electric vehicle. Now, he's in downtown Toronto in the middle of winter. It's cold, and he lives up in Woodbridge. And what's that? You know, 30-minute drive, 40-minute yeah, drive? Yeah. Anyways, his Tesla has an advertised range of 300K. Sure, that's in California or in <laughs> Vancouver. But when it's freezing cold, you know this with your iPhone battery. Yeah. When it's freezing cold, the battery just dies fast. And so he starts driving home, and he's noticing, oh, my God, his battery life is just disappearing. And he was saying in whatever he was writing, it was like that Apollo 13 movie. Remember, they're trying to get back to Earth <laughs> yeah. and turning off all the computers and all the juice? It was like that. He couldn't run his heat. He was running red lights to try to preserve the battery. So I think until you know we see an advancement in the technology on these electric cars uh you know if you're a if you're a one car household you're going to stick with gasoline it's really for a two car household and that typically is a more affluent household if you want to consider the electric vehicle but then it's really do you want to buy one in in a cold climate for even a commute that might only be 30 or 40 kilometers a day the technology may not be there so great you can get a, a bit of a uh uh, a rebate now, the zero emission rebate on uh, these vehicles, but um, it, it still may, it's, it's a technology maybe still not ready for prime time in uh, even in Toronto, even in Hamilton, where the winters can get cold, but they ain't as cold as you're going to get in, uh, you know, say Edmonton or something like that. David, uh, obviously Bay Street's got some mixed emotions about this. There's a lot of criticism about uh, what was presented yesterday by Mr. Morneau. So it's not going to sell on Bay Street, but is it going to sell in small-town Ontario? Is it going to sell in the suburbs? Because that's, that's really, I think, well, what they're shooting for here, isn't it? You know who is jumping up and down after this budget is mayors, mayors and municipal yeah. councils. Why? Because the feds kicked in uh, sort of a one-time big, huge chunk, $2.2 billion into what's called the federal gas tax fund. And this is a fund that municipalities can tap into to spend money on anything they want. They don't need provincial approval. It's, you know, you got a pothole, you got some sidewalks, you got, a, you know, some sewers to fix. Mayors love this. So uh, they're pretty happy about that. And that will flow down into small town Canada, smaller municipalities. Uh, they should enjoy that. I still think that so far as commuters in suburbs go, 
there's uh, there's still a carbon tax in Ontario, right? And we yeah. know that because it was imposed on Ontario. And you know, uh, I just did my taxes, and sure enough, the Aiken household we got the quote carbon tax rebate. It's not called that; it's got some other bureaucrat name, a climate action initiative or something. But I got a few hundred bucks extra, and I'm looking. I'm a commuter, and I'm going to be monitoring, you know, the uh, gas prices and other prices to see if I feel I've come out ahead or not. But to the extent that folks who commute uh, every day uh, where you live, Bill, and there's you know hundreds of thousands of them, uh, are they going to be better off or worse off with the carbon tax and with the carbon rebate program? I think that is going to be the bigger thing that weighs on voters as they consider who to vote for uh, this fall. Obviously, the liberals are betting, hey, that rebate is going to be bigger. You're going to love it. And, of course, we've heard from the likes of the Ontario Premier, Doug Ford, saying uh, this is terrible tax on everything, raising the cost of everything. That's the battle, I think, for sure, uh, in uh, in that whole uh, you know horseshoe stretching from Pickering all the way around down to Niagara. That's, that's going to be a big debate. Absolutely. David Aiken, Chief Political Correspondent with Global News. David, thanks as always. Appreciate the time today. All right. No problem. Cheers. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Well, as uh, David Aiken, uh, Chief uh, Political Correspondent with Global News, told us just a couple of minutes ago in the last segment, uh, the uh, Prime Minister, the Finance Minister, and I guess some other key ministers are uh, f- flogging out around the country right now trying to sell the budget that was presented yesterday. It was tabled yesterday. Anyway, I don't know that anybody actually heard the presentation. But uh, everybody else has been uh, going through it with a fine-tooth comb now, trying to find the good, the bad, and the ugly of it. And uh, we'll continue our discussion about that over the next few minutes. Joining us now is uh, Aaron Wadrick with the uh, Canadian Taxpayers Federation uh, with their take on this. Aaron, thank you for the time on a busy day after the budget. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, Bill. How are you? Good, good. Uh, now, you couldn't hear them yesterday because of the stuff that was going on in the House of Commons. Looked like a bunch of kids on a sugar high. But other than that, uh, you've had a chance to go over this right now. We always expect a lot of goodies in, in any budget that's coming up just before an election. Uh, what, were your, what, what was your take on what you read and what you've seen so far? Well, you know, I was, uh, I was in the lockup yesterday, Bill, so I had the full day to go through this document. Um, I mean, obviously, the top-line issue for a group like ours is the deficit. I mean, these guys explicitly promised to balance the budget in 2019. They said it over and over again. Um, they're nowhere near that. Uh, in fact, they're going to add five times as much debt, over $100 billion more than they promised. So we think that's a substantial pro- problem. Um, other than that, I mean, it's a pretty bog-standard pre-election budget. Uh, governments of all stripes in an election year tend to sprinkle the goodies around and signal to people that they think are going to vote for them that, hey, I'm in your corner. So you see quite a bit of that in this budget. So uh, if there's any good news at all, it's that even though they've gone on a bit of a spending spree, it maybe wasn't as massive as, as some people may have feared. Well, yeah, because two of the things that we had heard that they may include in this uh, one was Pharmacare, and, and they really just paid lip service to that in the budget yesterday, didn't they? And the other one, of course, some people were still very strongly advocating for a national daycare program, and I thought maybe at least they'd promised that. That wasn't even in the, in, the, in the cards yesterday. No, and, you know, I think even a government that likes to spend recognize that those are big-ticket items and that they would really just, I mean, those are tens of billions of dollars in terms of spending. These are not little things. So uh, as much as they might, their heart might want to do it, they just... Even these guys recognize that that would be way too much. That's that's a bridge too far, then, is it? <laughs> given the financial situation here, 
Well, it says a lot. If even these guys who seem to have absolutely no qualms busting past all of their own targets, even if even they think that's too expensive, it, it probably is. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's an underscoring comment. Let, let me ask you about the deficit situation, Eric. Well, you and I have talked about this in the past, and uh, you, you talk to economists or, or federations like yourself and others, and 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 you know we've had business professors on here, and, and we all know the deficits are bad. That's not the way you're supposed to run a household. It's not the way you're supposed to run a business. Certainly not the way you're supposed to run a country. Yet most of them do, uh, and we do. As a matter of fact, as Canadians, and you and I have talked about the you know the individual debt that we're all having right now. Uh, is 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 debt load the new normal here? And are we kind of is this white noise when we hear about a government and their deficits? Well, we certainly hope not, and I hope Ontario provides a really good wake-up call for us in this, right? There are a lot of people right now that are very concerned about cuts, spending reductions. You look at the, the, the uproar over autism and not enough money for funding. Well, this is exactly why we need to balance budgets, Bill. If we don't balance budgets down the road, it means less money for other things. So, I, you know, I, I do find it a bit much that there were people during the McGinty win years who insisted it's no big deal to run deficits, and these are the people that are the most outraged now that there's no money to pay for important programs. Well, if they balance the budget, we wouldn't have this problem. And so I, I really hope that people take this to heart and recognize there is no free lunch. And as much as there are many great things to spend on today, if we choose to spend more today, that's less for tomorrow, and, and that will make life, t- life tougher for a lot of people. Why don't they get that message in Ottawa, though? I mean, th- this is 13 years now that federal governments have run deficits of, of some description, some big, some you know not so big, but deficits nonetheless. Uh, it, different spending priorities, but everybody's talking this game, Aaron. Everybody says, yeah, we're going to do this. And, of course, as you mentioned, the Trudeau Liberals promised this in the last federal election. And and that's come and gone, and that's not going to happen right now. Uh, it, it's Is it easier said than done? Is that the problem here? Well, I think it's a matter of will. I mean, you saw the Harper government. They ran big deficits, but they did show the discipline to get back to balance. These guys have shown the willingness to spend, but not the willingness to come back. And that's where we're concerned. I mean, they seem to recognize that people saw it was important. That's why they made the promise. That's why they ran around the country saying over and over, we will balance the budget. Now they're trying to say it doesn't matter. Uh, they're trying to have it both ways. And, you know, uh, the last thing I'd say is they, you know, they got more money in this budget than they were expecting. They got a windfall of several billion dollars. So they actually could have got away with more spending and still reduce the deficit or balance the budget. But they chose to spend that anyway. So even free money that fell into their lap, they rushed it out the door as soon as it came in. I think that really says a lot about where this government's priorities are. Yeah, that's that's akin to somebody obviously getting a rebate check and running out and spending it. And, you know, and obviously there's other things you could be doing. You've got bills sitting on the desk. And, and I guess that's that's one of the lessons learned in a situation like this. But it just... Well, yeah. If you're running up, if you have a balance on your credit card and you don't want to have that balance, if you get free money, the first thing you should be doing is paying it off. That's not what they did. They ran out and ran up the credit cards and more. What, what, is this going to sell? I, I, I mentioned with David Aiken a few minutes ago, it, it, it's it's not going to sell on Bay Street. A lot of uh, people that know about finances and know about how economies are supposed to run are very skeptical about this right now. But but you know and I know that one of the things that these guys did, and probably one of the first priorities they did, is, okay, you know, is this going to get us reelected? And and that's not new. That's not the first government that's thought that way. And it's it's probably a priority. Of course it's a priority for them. I mean, they, they want to keep it, you know, in the corner office there. They want to do what they're going to do here right now. 
Well, sure, it's, but, not, it's are, not unique to them. They, I mean, every government wants to get reelected, and most governments will spend more in election year. So I don't think they're particularly bad on that front. Uh, the question, will it have any impact? Hard to say. I mean, the election's half a year away. You've got many other issues in play, like this SNC-Lavalin scandal, which I do not think is going away. I do not think this budget will change the channel, so to speak, on that. Um, so we will see. Uh, you know, I see the government has nodded to groups that they think are important to get reelected, like millennials, you know, first-time homebuyers, seniors. They are all getting nods in this budget. So we will have to see whether their message uh, resonates with those groups. Yeah, but except, as, as has always happened during elections, most of the stuff that they're promising here is backloaded. In other words, the codicil here is re-elect us and then we'll see about implementing this stuff. Well, sure. And some of them, I mean, it's not even it's not even that the money isn't coming to later. Uh, some of these policies might be bad ideas. Like if you look at the program that they're bringing in to assist people to buy a home, this could very well just stoke demand without creating supply. So you might actually end up it might end up backfiring and, and driving housing prices in places like Toronto and Vancouver even higher. But I think from the government standpoint, what they wanted to do was signal. They wanted to signal to these groups that we get what your top issues are, and they're kind of hoping that no one's going to bother paying attention to the details. Yeah, I was mentioning that. I was talking to somebody in the real estate business this morning about this, and, and their concern was that this policy did not address housing stock. And I'm not just talking about affordable housing. I'm talking about, you know, houses, residential, first-time homebuyer stuff. Uh, oh, and and and, right. and this is this this is not rocket science. I mean, we've been talking about this for the last couple of years. Uh, you know, Tim Hudak from the Realtors Association and others have simply said, "Look, it, we need more housing stock. We need incentives to get these builders to out and build these things." And and they didn't address that. And his concern, the the agent I was talking to this morning said, "This may get us into another bidding war where first time home buyers are going to say, I want to take advantage of those incentives, uh, but I'm in I'm in a bidding war for that property that we want.'" Well, exactly. And it's, it's a supply and demand problem at the end of the day. There's a limited amount that the feds can do because a lot of the time it's, it's municipal and provincial regulations that are restricting supply. So I, I, it is a real problem. Don't get me wrong. I think it's crazy that in some cities you can't find a house for under a million dollars. But uh, as the government is, I think they're wrong to think that they're going to be able to solve it with a little tax credit like they've offered. What about the cooperation? You just touched on a very sore point. Uh, federal government, provincial government uh, working together doesn't happen very often these days. No, it doesn't, for a bunch of reasons. I mean, there are genuine ideological differences between governments, but also it plays well, right? Politically, it's, it's, it's good for both uh, Justin Trudeau and Doug Ford to be seen to be fighting the other. Um, and that, you know, unfortunately can, can not work out well for, for, peop- for, for regular people when governments aren't getting along. Aaron, busy day for you. I'm, I'm so glad you had some time to talk to us about this. Uh, thanks so much. We'll stay in touch. My pleasure. Okay, that's Aaron Woodrick, of course, from the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. And, and other agencies have weighed in on this, too. And, and I guess the balance that the government's trying to find here is, is okay, what's going to be politically good for us, but at the same time addressing some of the economic woes? And, and you know, when you look at, at well, Bill Morneau as an example, I mean, this is a guy that, that's cut his teeth and has been very successful in, in the business world and the financial world for a long time. So this is a guy who knows what he's doing when it comes to finances. Uh, but then there's the political side of this as well. And uh, is this going to sell? Uh, I want to continue our discussion uh, about exactly the impact this budget is going to have and, uh, and more importantly, I guess, how it's going to be received over the next little while. And to that end, we're pleased to welcome to the program uh, Professor Atif Kaversi, economist at McMaster University. Uh, Professor, good to talk with you again. Thanks so much for the time today. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. you. You've been doing budgets for a long time, Atif, watching these things and watching how people react to this. How do governments find that balance between what is economically feasible and responsible to do, but at the same time, something that's going to sell politically? 
Well, the budget has always been a political document. It's not an economic document only. It's uh, typically the political program of the government. And this is particularly so of this budget, which comes on the heel of uh, the expected uh, election in October 2019. There are lots of goodies and there are lots of choices that the government had made that would indicate uh, that this is a pre-election budget with lots of goodies and choices uh, that will shore up the fortunes of the Liberal Party. Is there anything that was not in that budget that you expected would be? Uh, You see, the uh, story is like this. Uh, We had a very strong year uh, uh, for government finances last year, and the revenues had increased, and the government uh, could definitely have used this, as most economists would have probably suggested, uh, to reduce the deficit. Instead, uh, the government is coming out with $23 spending program, uh, particularly uh, targeting uh, groups uh, they consider to be in the middle class uh, to uh, continue their strategy uh, to elicit as much support from this group, this is the largest group in the economy and society, uh, to support the liberals. There are two uh, demographics, I guess, that, that they, they seem to have been paying an awful lot of attention to. Uh, one is millennials, and we've talked about that, about you know the, the first-time home buyers and things of this nature. And and the the, the irony, I guess, of the, to this whole thing is that millennials voted in the last federal election. They don't usually, but the numbers were significantly higher. So obviously, this is a, this is a, a demographic that they're trying to reach out to. But at the same time, the other, I guess, demographic group, uh, a team that tends to vote pretty regularly in big numbers, are seniors. Have, have they done enough with those two demographic groups to try to get that sort of support that they're looking for? Well, there are three demographic groups they seem to be targeting. Millennials, who, as you noted correctly, that don't have a good record of showing up. Uh, the seniors, yes, they do. And here we have uh, a number of uh, programs targeting the seniors, which is the guaranteed income supplement. Mm-hmm. And they seem to have increased uh, the uh, uh, the amount of money that they would usually exclude uh, from uh, the supplement, and this is amount of money they earn through employment and uh, self-employment. Yeah, there used to be a clawback there. There was a clawback, and now it's, it's, it has uh, increased up to 15000 uh, The pharmacare, and, and this is a group which has very intensive use of uh, uh, medications, uh, they seem to have targeted to give money to the Canada Drug Agency to negotiate on behalf of Canadians' programs uh, to uh, uh, reduce the cost of this. And what they have done also, uh, and they're going to uh, earmark about $2 billion uh, to rare diseases uh, where uh, drugs and medications are excessively uh, costly, and the government is uh, targeting this to increase the support and access, which particularly affects seniors in this regard. Yeah, I was surprised, pleasantly surprised, to actually see that in there. We've done a number of programs over the last number of years about, for instance, scleroderma, which is one of those rare diseases. And uh, and I know there's a great deal of research that's going on right over at McMaster by uh, some fabulous people about scleroderma research. And uh, and we've got one of the more active chapters right here in Hamilton for the Canadian uh, Scleroderma Association. Uh, and you're right, the price of medications is, is ridiculous and, and obviously onerous for an awful lot of people. Uh, that's a very small group that they're t- reaching out to, but it's, I think it's a very important group and somebody who's uh, not before this anyway getting much attention from the federal government. 
yes, absolutely in the sense that you have mentioned that this is probably the group that votes that votes en masse and uh, uh, definitely is uh, targeting uh, uh, this group and hoping that uh, they will deliver uh, the support that uh, they are trying and targeting to elicit. So we've we've got the numbers now, and and the prime minister, as we mentioned, and the finance minister, and other members of the of the cabinet are out trying to sell this right now. They're trying to sell this to the public. I mean, sure, they'll be talking to chambers of commerce uh, and other organizations over the the days and weeks ahead. How is this going to sell? Is, is is this is this going to placate some of the people that were concerned about uh, some of the challenges that they're facing these days, the economic challenges? Well, I don't think that they have really been quite sensitive to uh, chambers of commerce and others, although. Uh, if you look at the budget, there are few programs that uh, uh, are uh, attractive to this group. Uh, you know, they're giving more money for innovation. They're, uh, uh, you know, trying to uh, get uh, uh, support for uh, research and development. And uh, they're uh, even giving uh, money now for people who would buy electric vehicles. Uh, they reintroduce the support, uh, $5,000 per vehicle, as long as the price of the vehicle is not above 45000 uh, There are some goodies that you might consider to be marginally uh, targeting the group that uh, are represented by Congress. But uh, in, in general, I don't think this is the group that the liberals were worried about. Government support for uh, retraining programs is interesting. Uh, that, that may be tending to move towards blue-collar workers, those that are, are laid off or find themselves uh, non-employed because of some of the changes that have gone on in the economy. A lot more problematic for them to go back and get retraining because oftentimes they have mortgages and families to support, and they need that kind of money. Uh, that's that's a, a demographic that traditionally would probably tend to lean left, yet the government's tried to bring them into the fold with that program. Uh, I suppose so, but it's pretty little money. I mean, what they're saying is $250, uh, a non-taxable sort of credit that people could use uh, to pay for half of a course they take uh, at a college, university, or at a training center. Uh, it's nice. It's uh, more uh, in terms of uh, the uh, objective of supporting workers who go on training or need retraining, uh, but, but it's to some extent uh, a, a bit worse in the sense that uh, it presupposes uh, that, uh, and that, that's the issue here, it presupposes that the uh, real problem of uh, unemployment is uh, the responsibility of workers who have not had the skills that are required. Canadian workers are highly educated, highly skilled. The issue here, quite often, unemployment is the result of inadequate demand and uh, not a strong economy. And the Liberals now have to really worry about last month and the month before uh, the rate of growth of the Canadian economy has slowed measurably. Well, and, and there are some contributing factors to that uh, that, uh, you know, boards have talked about in the past, and one of them is a shortage of skilled labor and skilled trades. And, and I, I, part of the solution that, that I've talked about on this program that I haven't heard the government talk about, and they certainly didn't mention it yesterday, was recognizing the skills and talents of foreign labor as they come into this country. Oftentimes, uh, those organizations don't do that, which is why you've got very talented people, very educated people from other parts of the world that are coming in here and taking jobs well below their, their status simply because they're not being accepted into our economic realm. No, that's a fair point. Uh, there is really accreditation. There are really programs here. But uh, certainly there is one thing that is uh, quite noticeable and quite 
uh, important here is the recognition of the uh, qualification and to accredit, uh, to credit and accredit these things quickly and appropriately. Uh, the uh, uh, workers that uh, are brought into Canada and immigrants who come have incredible education and uh, typically much uh, higher levels of education in terms of years of schooling, not probably quality, but uh, definitely these could be inducted into the la- labor force, in, into the labor market, into jobs, and they could really get the skills uh, tuned and honed to what is required in Canada. Absolutely, and we certainly allay a lot of the concerns people have. Uh, Dr. Kabusi, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for the time today. Great talking with you again. My pleasure. Thank you. Take care. Dr. Atif Kabursi, of course, economist at McMaster University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Uh, we should go down this road, though, and it's called the Red Hill Parkway. Uh, there has been a, a great deal of concern, very legitimate concern, about the uh, the Red Hill, uh, frankly, since it opened, but more specifically since we've seen some statistics about the number of collisions and, sadly, the number of deaths. Uh, then came the revelation, of course, that there was a report that indicated that uh, the f- friction of the road itself, in other words, the thing that's supposed to make you stop skidding, uh, was questioned by at least one consultant. Well, that, never, that report never saw the light of day. Uh, council didn't see it. The public certainly didn't see it. And uh, it sat there in somebody's bottom drawer for the longest time as the uh, collisions and and the fatalities continued on the Red Hill. Now we find out that uh, City Council today will make a decision, at least we think they're going to make a decision, about how to proceed. Uh, Joining us to talk about this is our good friend uh, Graham Crawford from History and Heritage Owner, an active resident, uh, the Citizen of the Year, by the way. It's the first time I've seen you face-to-face since then. Congratulations. Thank you, Bill, very much. Is there a title there, Mr. Citizen of the Year? Cody, as I like to say, C-O-T-Y. For those that are not, he's wearing a crown. I guess that's part of the (laughs) the thing, is it? Great. No, it's great. That was fabulous and well-deserved, too. Uh, I, my obvious question here is, what do you think is going to happen today? I'm, <laughs> the, I've not seen the report. I've talked to some people who have uh, that they're going to be dealing with, and apparently they're going to be presented with a range of options. That's never good for this council. No, I mean, the worst thing this council can be presented with is five or six options. Uh, they have trouble settling on anything. Um, so this is going to be a problem. I think what we're going to have is another late-night session. So I'd say to all the reporters are going to be at City Hall uh, you know, order your pizza now because uh, I think they're going to go in camera and stay there for a long time. Uh, well, I asked Brad Clark about that yesterday, and I said, Look, why are you going camera in the first place? I mean, Agreed. this is a very public incident, a very public report. Now, I can understand that, that you might want to get some legal advice about this because there is a possible liability here, and, and, and maybe that needs to be discussed. But the discussion and the debate about how to proceed and which one of these options uh, must be public. It has to be public. I agree completely. I mean, if there was ever a, a, a topic, an issue, a situation that warranted openness and transparency, this is it. People died. Now, was it a co- be caused by uh, the, the, the poor friction? I don't know. No, nope, but somebody does. Uh, the fact, Bill, as you know, this report wasn't just buried once. It was buried twice. So it was discovered before the last election. It happened in two thir- 2013, buried. And if we think one person, some junior person who got that report sat on it, think again. There's not a chance that happened. How high up? I have no idea. But then in 2018, it gets discovered and then uh, it gets buried again because of, quote, the election. Well, who makes that decision? How, how do you, who sat down and said, you know, it would be a good idea if we didn't say anything about this for a second time? And now it's out. 
So uh, it's and apparently the Ministry of Transportation, according to Brad Clark, also did some testing, and that report uh, was kept by the ministry, not shared with the city nor with council. There's a there's three cover-ups that we we're all, we already know about. Which begs the obvious question on all three: Why? Why? And Brad Clark put together a series of questions. And they're excellent questions. I would encourage people to, to seek them out. But one of the key questions, aside from, you know, who did what when, was why? You're right, Bill. Why is the key question here? Um, and I have a feeling what council is going to do tonight is they're going to talk about cost of, of based on the choices because each choice will come with a different price tag. Well, sure, yeah. The problem is the big cost is liability. And uh, they'll face that whether, no matter what choice they pick. Uh, what what if they pick the judicial investigation? At least we'll have all of the facts, so that. Uh, but there's a class action lawsuit that's coming. It doesn't matter whether they pick option A or or option F. Uh, it's coming, and I don't know what that um, that dollar amount will be, but I bet you it's in the many millions of dollars. Well, it may well be. But as I said to Councillor Clark when he was on the program yesterday. Uh, you don't put a cost on on, on public safety. I, I, I get that if this is something else, but we're talking about people's lives. We're talking about collisions. We're talking about and people's lives are far more important than than damage to vehicles and etc. Like that. But it's all part and parcel. Uh, and I know some of the counselors that I've hit on the show have said, "Look, if the road wasn't safe, we would have closed it down." So of course it's safe at the proper speed. Well, you don't know that. No, they don't. You don't know that. Yeah. And, and uh, I've talked to engineers. I've talked to to lawyers who have been involved in, in right. doing investigations into these sorts of things. And they, of course, they say, uh, you know, for instance, if the stated speed limit is, is say, 80 kilometers an hour, and uh, it's really built for 90 because they know people are going to go a little right. over. It's not built for 120. So, right. sp- yeah, speed could be a factor in some of these things. But it said, even in the report that the city commissioned, speed was a factor in half of them. Well, that means in half of them it wasn't. It wasn't. So what caused it? That's right. No, exactly right. And, of course, people drive too fast on the Red Hill. We know that. But for a counselor to dismiss all of those accidents and the report results, the, uh, the study results, uh, as if, well, it's, it's just because of speeding, that, that's not acceptable. Bill, I would also add that, you know, what price do you put on truth and justice? Because I mean, I don't use those words lightly. I mean it. The truth is there. We have it. But we have to find it and make it public. And justice is justice, not just for residents of Hamilton, but for those who have been driving that Red Hill, those who have been in accidents, those whose family members have died, and also those who just use it daily. Um, you know, friends of ours we know, they have their kids in the car. They're yeah. doing it now. Yeah. Um, that that the justice, the injustice of continuing to bury this report for the fourth time. Let's be again. I want to restate that this thing's been buried three times already. Council has a, a, a there's a moment of truth and leadership tonight where they can choose the right decision, and some of them I know are dithering. Some are not. Brad Clark is very clear. Terry Whitehead apparently is very clear. He wants a judicial investigation. And he cited a personal reason and personal yeah, experience. Yeah. Um, council's got to make this decision tonight. Every time we, we, we think we were on the road here, two weeks ago, uh, it seemed as if they were all on side with yep, that. And we're going to get some information back from council. Now, all of a sudden, they seem to be obfuscating about this. I, I heard word today, by the way, that now one of the recommendations staff are saying we should do some more uh, skid testing ourselves. Right. 
what part of lack of credibility don't they understand right now? And I know Jan McKinnon, the general manager. I worked with Dan when I was at the city years ago. He's a, he's an upstanding guy. Uh, I, I have no problem with Dan at all. But the citizenry of this country, or this city right now don't want city to do their own investigation. If they're going to do more skid testing, not a bad idea, but it should be done by an independent body. I agree. Absolutely agree. And uh, as, as people may know, uh, the lawyer, for those who are considering a class action lawsuit, has said, do not repave this uh, roadway until you do current tests because... Uh, well, it's destroying evidence. It destroys evidence, literally destroys evidence. Uh, it's a very important point and one I hadn't thought of, to be perfectly honest, until I read it in the, the spec today. Um, so there's a lot of stuff going on here. On the other hand, I actually think the decision is a simple one. This decision should be made in 20 minutes tonight. I don't think it's going to be. I, I do take your point about they may need to go into camera to just get an update on sort of the legal side of, of the options. But the, but the decision as terms of which one they select should be in public. We should be able to see our elected leaders talk about something that is affecting tens of thousands of residents every single day. Uh, and there's been a you know, the tragedies that have happened. I don't know if you heard or read that letter by the father of one of the girls, young women who was killed. It, Bill, it was just heartbreaking. Grandma, uh, uh, I guess it was about a year ago now. I had three of the mothers on here. And, 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 and we yes. talked about what was going on. And this is long before we knew about this friction study. Yes, yes. We just knew that there were people dying mm-hmm. and more than there should have been. I mean, one is one too many, but way too many collisions on that stretch of road. Uh, you know, and I've talked to police officers who who can patrol that road, uh, and I'll tell you one of them quite openly. Quint Tulin, of course, is the president of the police association. Uh, says, yeah, I've, I've I've patrolled up there. He says I've got concerns about that road, the design of it, the way it's made up. He says and driving it, and he says it it's problematic. Uh, and and these are the people that are supposed to know these sorts of things. Uh, and, you know, they may not be engineers, they may not be quote-unquote experts, but they've got a little more expertise than the average individual. Well, they do. One of the things that I find a little deafening is the silence. Um, those uh, in power, in senior positions, have said nothing. I, I'm sure they've been told by uh, the legal counsel of the city to not, uh, the city solicitor, not to say anything. So fair, fair enough. But again, anybody who believes that, you know, a junior supervisor made the decision to deep six this thing twice is is nuts in my opinion that's just not credible well there's another reason for this too and in the absence of facts comes speculation oh indeed and we've seen this rampant on social media over the last little while and a lot of it is bs Uh, some of it are legitimate questions i get that uh, you know, as soon as we found out that Dufferin was building this thing, all of a sudden a number of people pointed their fingers at Lloyd Ferguson. Ah, he, just, he wasn't yeah. even with Dufferin then. He long left that company. So, yeah. but, but, you know, they got a beef with Lloyd, so all of a sudden they're going to blame him. Uh, some people are blaming uh, Mayor Eisenberg around this. Now, I'm trying to do the math. He wasn't even on council then. <laughs> so I doubt very much he had much to do with this. So, you know, let's, let's find out, instead of speculation, let's find out the truth. Let's get the facts here and find out who knew what and how far up the ladder it went. I, I, I concur with you. This was not some junior guy that said, oh, I got that report in the mail. Oh, no, they don't want to see that. Somebody had eyes on this. Right. As I said, twice. Yeah. Twice. It may not be the same set of eyes, but the fact is, who decides to deep six it in uh, in 2018, the fall of 2018, because of an election? Like, what would that have to do with with friction testing on the Red Hill Valley Expressway? Unless 
well, I don't know, fill in the blank. Um, they're worried about how angry counts uh, incumbents will feel if this kind of bad press comes out. I don't know. But this is, again, back to the question you asked and a question Brad is asking. It's the key question. Why? Why did we decide that deep-sixing this twice was a good idea? Who, who went through that rationale and who made the ultimate decision to deep-six it? And, and I know there's been some explanations, and I'll use that term advisedly, about what may have happened. Uh, and, and I know that st- some of the current staff have said, look, there's a lot of information that comes to staff from uh, consultants that uh, never gets forwarded on to council. And I'll, I'll take them where it probably is, because uh, they're inundated with stuff. But when something comes along that questions the safety, safety of a road, I'm sorry, that's a red flag. Yeah, this isn't about a logo or a new advertising program that they're not going to bother doing. Uh, or looking at uh, a park structure, you know. No, this is safety. Uh, and, Bill, as you said, you've had guests on here for several years talking about safety. You've talked to police officers. Uh, people just need to, to look at what gets reported about the number of accidents. We know there's a problem. And you can't dismiss it purely by saying speed is the factor. And we know that's not the case anyway. Uh, you know, we hear the, 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 uh, the spec quotes uh, a University of Manitoba professor, engineering professor, who said the the friction tests on on the road when it was new, uh, brand new, were lower than anyone would have expected for a brand new road. Of course, yet, I've, yet I've seen the YouTube uh, because it's been circulating now of a meeting. I guess it was about four or five years ago yep. now, where Councilor Marula was questioning staff, and he was told that that road either met or exceeded all expectations. That's correct. He was. And I've watched it several times. Um, I don't know that Sam gets a clean bill of health on that one because he preceded it by saying there's a lot of nonsense on social media about the safety of the Red Hill Valley. And then he asked staff. So once he telegraphed to staff what his position was, he then said, so tell, give me an update. And they said exactly as you said. So, I mean, Sam, in my view, has been leaving out half of that story because watch the tape. He says so much nonsense on social media about the safety. Please tell us how safe is it? And then they give him the answer. So they, they were doing, in my view, it could be construed as they were doing his bidding because he told them what answer he wanted. There's another element to this. I know we're almost out of time. Uh, it's got to be an independent review. I mean, I, I've, I've even got a problem with council setting the parameters for this. Yes. I, I, I just yeah. hire judge so-and-so or right. retire judge so-and-so, whomever it's going to be. And just say, you keep turning up rocks until you get the answers here, yeah. and then come back to us. Yeah, and they need to look through emails. Uh, who knows if those things have been wiped? I don't know. I'm, a, I'm not a conspiracy kind of guy, but, but stuff happens. And unfortunately, when, when it goes on this long and counsel is not stepping up and saying publicly, we need a judicial inquiry, you start to worry. Well, what's going on? Not just how did it happen, but what are they doing now currently? to uh, make sure their tracks are covered. I don't know. I don't know. Well, there's a time sensitivity to this, too, because they already have scheduled reconstruction and resurfacing of that road. Yep. Uh, and, and as Rob Hooper, the lawyer who's working with the families, has yes. already suggested, uh, you know, that's evidence. Uh, should we really be doing that? And uh, so, you know, we need to get some answers before they start taking the jackhammers to that road. This is one of the worst stories I've heard, Bill, about our, about that erodes trust in our, our city hall and, quite frankly, in our leadership uh, not just staff, but also counselors. I mean, they, they should be standing on the tabletops and shouting and saying, we need to, the truth. We need to know what happened. And they're not. And the question is, why? Back to the good question. Why? 
Well, and, and if it's because they know something we don't know, then, then my question is, why don't we know that then? Good idea. That's our, it's our community. I yeah. drive on that road. Yeah, my yeah. family drives on that road. We have a right to know what's happening. And, and it's not a witch hunt. I, it isn't. It, no, no, it's a matter of getting to the truth and finding out what happened and make sure this sort of stuff doesn't happen again. It mustn't happen again because people's lives are at stake. And this, you know, we're probably going to have to spend some money. But, you know, you, sometimes you have to pay for your sins. And uh, this could be a $10, $12, 15000000 million bill. I don't know. But, to, you know, in terms of class action lawsuit and so on, um, it's going to be expensive. We made a mistake. Somebody made a mistake, no and we compounded that mistake. Well, they can go a long way towards rectifying it by enacting what I think most of the people in this community wanted to see them do tonight. We'll see what happens. Graham, always a pleasure. Thanks, Thanks for coming Bill. in again. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.